welcome to our class tonight. Uh, for those of you who, for, what, for whatever reason, may be here tonight, I do not have any more notes. Uh, I copied 70 copies, and they're all used up. So if you don't have one, you're going to have to let me know, and I'll copy some more. Um, so send me an email or something, okay? Uh, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to explore naturalism, one of the dominant worldviews that spills over into atheistic thinking, secularism, humanism, all that kind of good stuff. And uh, but what I want to begin uh, tonight doing is just asking a simple question. Did any of you share your faith this week or defend Christianity? And if so, would you like to tell us how it went? Anybody? Any great opportunities open up? Nicole? Yeah, I had to talk to a friend. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> where, where would you, well, how would you categorize her worldview just based on what we've talked about so far in class? Um, Does she believe in God? Yes. Yeah. So she's probably a theist? Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Adam? Okay. Okay, yeah. What, anybody else? What, what you'll find is there's people that are opposed to Christianity philosophically. Like there's something philosophically about Christianity they just don't like. There's other people that are opposed to Christianity theologically, generally other theists, like Muslims, Jews. Uh, and there's also people that are opposed to Christianity more on a popular, popular level. So they would say things like, all churches want is your money. Because they heard one guy on the radio asking for money like 25 years ago. But all Christians just want your money. That's a pretty common one. Why does God allow suffering? That's another common one. A third would be, I met a Christian who's a hypocrite. Right? And you know what the correct response to that is, right? Yeah, so we all are. <laughs> Don't deny it. <laughs> just go along with it. And uh, those are kind of the, th the top three arguments that I often hear in conversations with people. So when you're doing apologetics, you've you got to kind of think about the category that, that person is in. Like, is this a person that's opposed to Christianity philosophically? There's actually something about the theistic worldview that they don't appreciate or they don't like or they're opposed to. And if it is, that's where you start the conversation. Or is it theological? They, you're talking to a Muslim and they just... They don't get the Trinity. So you're talking, they believe in God, but they don't believe in your God. So you're talking on a different level. Or you're talking to someone who may or may not have a religious background, but there's just something about popular Christianity they don't like. And if that's the case, you're talking to them on a different level. Now, my experience has been that probably 80 to 90% of the people that you're going to talk to are in this, the bottom two categories. They have some religious affiliation, but don't like yours. 
or they just don't like something about Christianity. But you are going to run into people who will vehemently debate you on philosophical questions. How do you know there's a God? That kind of stuff. Um, Adam and I, Adam and I actually took a fellow out this week, and um, uh, Adam invited me to be part of that conversation, and we had an interesting chat with this fellow, and I had the opportunity to share the gospel, and what I sometimes do is I use uh, what's called the diagnostic question. Now, don't footnote me on this, but I think this question came out of some of the Coral Ridge material 20, 30 years ago, the evangelism explosion stuff. So basically, you know, we're having a meal with this guy, and you ask the question, um, well, this is how I did it. I said, hey, do you mind, do you mind if I just kind of ask you a, a question? He's like, sure. Um, now, I hope this doesn't happen, but, you know, just, let's just talk theoretically. Let's just suppose that you jump in Adam's car, and you're flying down Walker Road, and some drunk smashes into the side of your vehicle, and you're dead. Now again, I hope it doesn't happen, but let's just say it does. And let's just suppose then that tonight you're standing before God. And God says to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? The response is almost always the exact same. Wow. <laughs> uh, well, I suppose I would tell him I'm, I'm a pretty good guy and you know, I, I, I try to help people out and whatnot. So nine times out of ten, that's going to be the response. In different words, but that's the response that you'll get. I've done this, I don't know how many dozens of times, but that's the response you get. So you sort of listen, and then I said, <clears throat> you know, that's, that's interesting because almost everybody I've ever asked that question to says the exact same thing. Oh, really? And then I just said, problem is you're wrong. He's like, whoa. So, and then I explained to him why. Okay, so I explained the nature of sin, the nature of God, and how the two don't mix. So we have a problem. So when you're sharing, when you get to the point where you're sharing the gospel, you always start with the bad news. You always start with the bad news. The sin problem, the state of humanity, the holiness of God, and that this perfect God cannot allow sin into his presence. So what do we do with that? Well, why don't we just pay the bill and go home and we'll all be extremely depressed tonight. So then you say, you know, if you're interested, I can share with you the correct response from the Bible. Sure. And you see, my tactic is I want him to, in a sense, I'm using a tactic to get him to give me permission to tell him something I'm really not asking him permission to tell him. You get it? Because I'm going to tell him anyway. But I want to put him in a position where he has to give me permission to tell him. So do you mind if I share something with you very, very important? Well, most people aren't going to say no. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. So then you explain the gospel, right? So you explain the bad news. You can bring in all kinds of concepts, sin, damnation, uh, separation, lostness. What, there's all kinds of concepts that we need to talk about, death in that category. And then the solution, the remedy, which is Jesus Christ. And in fact, this, is the, the, this, this approach is patterned after the book of Romans because the book of Romans uh, has 16 chapters. The first three are all bad news. So if you just had the first three chapters of Romans, you'd be like really depressed 
Because Romans 1, 2, and 3 like slams us, slaps us upside the head, hip jacks us, throws us down, beats the crap out of us. And basically tells us that we're all despicable. And there's, n- there's nothing good about us. But then as soon as you get out of chapter 3, then you get into the good news. And then you get past chapter 12 and it tells you how you're supposed to live in light of the good news. So that's the sacrifice, the turning your life over to God kind of stuff. So, um, <clears throat> you know, what happens then is the gospel's gone out and he's got something to think about. Now, uh, where prayer comes in is when you have those conversations with people, they, they gen- tend to get it and understand it here and here. But later in the conversation, you see them drifting back into, but I'm a good guy kind of language. So that, that's the Holy Spirit stuff. Your job is done at that point, essentially, because it's the Spirit of God that has to really convict and convert the person. But you've at least gotten to that point you've shared the gospel. Now, um, what I wanted to do before we get into the notes is I just wanted to kind of give you a bit of a process uh, uh, or introduce you or maybe just kind of give you a bit of insight into my thinking as to where we're going. Because um, what, I, what I don't want to do is talk about all this worldview stuff and you're thinking, this isn't practical. I don't know why we're talking about this. I'm not talking to people about this kind of stuff, so why are we doing it? Well, there's two reasons why we've sort of been getting deep talking about the nature of reason and rationalism and all that kind of stuff the last couple of weeks. One of them is because of my philosophy of teaching. I think uh, when I went to high school, let's say you go to high school and you're taking whatever subject it is up to, inc- up to and including grade 12. Well, uh, if you're anything like me and most people I've met, five years out of high school... What do you remember? You probably, if you're a good student, remember maybe everything up to and including the end of grade 9, right? But if you didn't take grade 10, 11, and 12, you'd probably remember everything up to like grade 6. So the point is, when you teach, you sort of got to put stuff up on the top shelf and stretch people and challenge people because then they're going to remember stuff more on the middle shelf. So that my, I purposely over-teach. I don't expect you to remember all this stuff. But if we teach high, then hopefully you're going to actually come in, come in with the knowledge level about here, which is actually going to be where you're at. But if I dumb you down and treat you like babies and sort of teach you just the raw, here's what you say when you're meeting with your friend, then you'll probably forget that and be completely ineffective. So part of it is a teaching philosophy. Now, the other part of it is, is because I think that some of the f- philosophical stuff and theological stuff is extremely important. Now, you're basically going to be dealing with four kinds of people. So you're going to be dealing with people that say there is no God. Then you're going to be dealing with people that say there may be a God, there may not be a God. Then you're going to be dealing with people who say, yeah, there is a God. We call them theists. And then you're going to be, hopefully, winding up with Christians. Or at least people that, broadly speaking, are part of Christianity. So when we talk to people that say there is no God, we got to talk a little more philosophical. So this is where worldviews, trying to find out what that person's worldview is, is very important. That's why we're teaching this stuff. At this level, you're asking lots of questions, trying to understand, trying to probe. Why do they believe what they believe? Have they thought through what they believe? Is their worldview consistent or is there holes in it? And you're also going to be talking about some of the deficits of naturalistic thinking, people that view the world strictly in light of that which they can taste, touch, smell, see, and hear. And under this category, you're going to have 
atheists, you're going to have agnostics, you're going to have secular humanists, and all that kind of stuff. So just broadly speaking, these are the things you're going to be focusing in on if someone says there is no God. If someone says there is no God, you don't start jumping to proofs for the resurrection. Okay? You, you have to sort of deal with the issue of is there or is there not a God. And then if you can get the person to maybe, and by the way, it's, if you're dealing with, if you're sharing your faith with anybody who's honest, you can move them from here to here by asking one single question. It's extremely easy, actually, to move someone from there is absolutely no God to there might be a God. And the question I simply use is, do you know everything there is possible to know? Do you or don't you? Well, everybody who's halfway honest is going to say, well, no. Well, then you can't say, without any doubt, there is no God. Now, if they put it back at us and say, well, then what about you? Can you say, without a shred of doubt, there, there is a God? Well, we have to be honest, too, and say, well, there is a possibility that we're wrong. There is a possibility, right? Nevertheless, you can move people from no God to maybe just simply by asking the question, do you know everything there is to know about God and life? Well, no. Then you can't say categorically it's impossible that there could possibly be a God. Anyway, once you get into this camp, generally, broadly speaking, you're, you're going to get into discussions about the limitations of human knowledge, and you're going to have uh, discussions about what we talked about last week. Remember I said there's a difference between that which is irrational and that which is non-rational? A lot of times people accuse Christians of being irrational because you are people of faith, because you believe in something outside of the created order, because you believe in spirits and souls and all this kind of stuff. So no, no, no. You're committing what's called a categorical fallacy if you say, to talk about the supernatural, to talk about the existence of God is irrational. No, no, no. It's non-rational in part, but it's not irrational. And you could, you could point to issues like desire. Desire is not a rational concept. It's a non-rational concept, but it's real. Imagination, meaning, morality. These actually are things that naturalists believe exist, but they're not subject to scientific scrutiny. You can't, in a sense, prove these things or analyze or evaluate these things using the scientific method. They're real, but they fall into another camp, the non-rational. So you can, these are the kinds of things, just again, just broadly speaking, you're going to talk about to someone in the maybe camp. Now, if you're talking about a theist, because you've moved them from no to maybe to yeah, or from maybe to yeah, or you're just meeting them for the first time and they're already a theist, you skip all this stuff. And you're going to be getting into then evidences. So that's where you get into evidences for the resurrection or proofs for the resurrection or clues. Uh, I like to talk about clues just like um, last week I said to you that you can be convicted in a court of law beyond a reasonable doubt. So based on the evidence, you're, you, can go to a, you can go into a court of law and be convicted beyond a reasonable doubt, right? And that's enough to actually convict a person, put them away. But even when you're convicted beyond a reasonable doubt, unless you were caught in the act, even the jury would admit that there is a possibility that you, in fact, were innocent. And, in fact, jurisprudence shows us that because there are case studies of people who have been convicted beyond a reasonable doubt. And later on, Horatio Cain shows up with his CSI Miami team and he proves the guy to be innocent, right? But it's still something we use in law because it's enough to 
push a person to a conclusion. So when, when we share our faith with people, it's not like we have to use the scientific method and present airtight scientific arguments that can be tested and verified in a laboratory, but we can present clues sometimes, stronger language would be evidences, even stronger language would be proofs, depending on what it is, uh, to show the, uh, the, the nature of Christianity as a theistic religion to be true. And don't underestimate the livability of Christianity either. I, 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 John back here, he was asking me last, the theology course we taught last year about presuppositional apologetics. I just threw him a book to look at. Uh, Cornelius Van Til, uh, who was, who was, a reformed, was a reformed theologian and apologist, wrote a book uh, outlining what's called presuppositional apologetics. And in a nutshell, he says that Christianity, let's, let's draw a box, Christ, everything to do with Christianity, its beliefs, its practices, its morals, its perspectives, everything within the Christian box is so livable and coherent and interconnected that it is in and of itself a livable worldview that needs no other proofs from the outside to prove it to be true. So he says you can actually accept God as a presupposition, accept the whole package of who God is, how to live, and if you actually live within that box, within those boundaries or parameters, one of the greatest testimonies to Christianity is the fact that it's succinct, it's livable, it's practical, it answers all of life's questions, and uh, obviously properly lived uh, is good for you. So you can point to that. And we talk about testimonies or living out your faith or walking the talk in more colloquial language. Now, to move a person, obviously, from theism to biblical Christianity ultimately is a prayer thing. That's where your job is done, and the Holy Spirit's job, really, it's, it's all, all of the Holy Spirit to bring about that spiritual transformation and conversion, okay? So that's just kind of a little bit of an overview to kind of maybe help you understand why we're talking about this stuff and where all this other stuff kind of fits in as well, okay? Any questions about just that little overview? Okay, let's talk about naturalism. Now, what I've done in your notes is I've given you a number of definitions. Some of them are sort of difficult. They use difficult language. But some of the key phrases in the, um, in the definitions will, will be ones we all understand. So let's, let's just look at them. And these are from a variety of sources. I think I have some here back from the 60s right through to, uh, what do I have here, like the late 90s. So let's just look at some of these, to, just to help to understand. This is what I'm calling, and this is my language, the valueless existence. So we have uh, one by Donto, 1967. He calls it a species of philosophical monism, um, according to which whatever exists or happens is natural. So anything that exists or any phenomenon that happens can somehow be traced back to a natural explanation. If you go down further, second line from the bottom, uh, he says, uh, thus therefore cannot exist any entities or events which lie in principle beyond the scope of scientific explanation. I think what he's saying there when he says in principle is there may be some questions that scientists have not answered yet 
But in principle, everything that exists is able to be evaluated or in some way explained using the scientific explanation. Now, um, before we go any further, do you see any logical problems with that statement? Okay, I know, I know you're theists here tonight, so you don't like it. But logically, if he says, okay, everything that basically is, is definable, understandable through the scientific method. And there's nothing outside of that. There's nothing beyond the scope of that evaluative tool, the scientific process. Is there anything in that that seems odd to you or strange or missing? Glenn? Okay. Yeah, so there's, there's certain things, and actually other naturalists do admit to this and agree to this, that we talk about in life, like let's say human desire. How is desire as a concept really subject to scientific explanation? I mean, you can, you can make a tie in between desire and maybe physiology or human chemistry or the structure of the mind. So there's a tie in, but as sort of the, the concept of, of desire by itself, you, you sort of struggle with, well, how do, you, how do you take desire into a lab and test it and verify it or, or explain it? But the other thing that concerns me about this is he kind of makes a statement of fact that he believes that everything within the world, whatever exists or happens, is natural. And then just sort of carte blanche says, and there's nothing that can possibly exist that's outside of the process that we use to describe those kinds of things. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of uh, a very narrow, he, 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 he writes off without considerable explanation, anything outside of his box. He creates a very tight box, writes anything off outside of it, and uh, basically shuts down any form of conversation. Now, let me just say this to you. Christians are not opposed to scientific exploration, to looking at the natural world, to good science and that kind of stuff. We're not. And I think we have to be careful when we rail against science that we don't miscommunicate, especially to the, next, the younger generation that is very much inundated with the scientific method, that we are opposed to the scientific method. We're not opposed to the scientific method. But properly speaking, there's just certain things within the Christian faith that don't relate to the scientific method. They're in a different category. So we're talking about them in a different category. We're not opposed to good science. I hope that some of you are or will become good scientists, that you'll study the natural world and draw conclusions and contribute to biology and physics and all that kind of great stuff. But in a sense, you could say 
that naturalists are much more narrow-minded and limited than a good theist, in fact, is. And, and I hope that you find that refreshing because we're the ones that are often accused of being narrow-minded. And, and this surprises me because I could, I am not personally a trained scientist, but I would say to a scientist, I actually have quite a bit of interest, at least on a macro-popular level, in science. It's, it's interesting to learn about the human body or uh, the nature of uh, uh, health issues or these kinds of chemistry, right? These, these are interesting things that affect our lives. Nevertheless, let's look at some other definitions. The view that nature is all there is and all the basic truths are truths of nature. This is by Audie, 1996. Or the next definition, the twofold view that everything is composed of natural entities, those studied in sciences. Those properties determine all the properties of things, persons included, abstract entities like possibilities and mathematical objects. And two, uh, acceptable methods of justification and explanation are commensurable in some case, uh, in some sense, with those in science. The view that everything is natural, that everything uh, there uh, is belong, I think there's a typo in there, is belongs to the world of nature, and so can be studied by the methods appropriate for studying the world. Well, if you only have the scientific method, and you only use the scientific method to explain everything, and you're not even open to the fact that maybe there's some things that need to be looked at using a different method, then again, you're kind of boxing yourselves into a very narrow way of looking at the world. In other words, if the only method that you accept to determine that which is true is the scientific method, then it's impossible for us to even have a conversation about something outside of science. You've basically said we can't have a conversation because there is nothing that exists outside of that which is testable and provable using natural explanations. Another one, the philosophical movement that wishes to use the methods of science, evidence, and reason to understand nature, the place of the human species within it, skeptical of the postulation of a, a transcendental realm beyond nature, a spiritual world, something outside of the natural order, in other words, or of the claim that nature can be understood without using the, the methods of reason and evidence or the philosophical generalization of the methods and conclusions of the sciences. Again, naturalism is extremely limited in the methods it allows itself to use to determine that which is real or non-real. Very limited in terms of the methods it allows itself to use. So uh, back to my illustration last week. I'm driving home after church. This guy gets on the radio, says, you know, basically he gives a tip of the hat to people of faith. It's great to have people of faith and stuff like that, but the bottom line is they can't prove there's a God. Well, I know what he means by that. We can't prove that there's a God using the scientific method. Well, that's absolutely true. We've never said otherwise because God's not part of the natural world. So of course I can't use the scientific method to prove that there's a God who's not part of the natural world. See, it's a categorical mix-up. You can't take a method that's reserved for proving natural things and apply it to that which is supernatural. Now, this is important for you to hear because what we as Christians often do is someone says, prove to me that there's a God, and we're like, okay, well, I, I got to use the scientific method now to prove to this person that there's a God. No, we don't. Because philosophically, we're not saying that God exists within the created order. He's not a created being. By definition, he's outside of the created order. So we need to then introduce them to a different method of knowing truth and exploring truth. But in order to do that, 
one little tool, I guess, is to point out the flaws, or the, not the flaws, the inability of the scientific method, even to prove certain things that are observable within nature, like desire, meaning, morality, love, imagination. Now, as we move through the material tonight, what you'll see is that naturalists have tried to explain the origin of morals or the origin of values, but they do a very poor job of it. So they, they understand that there are values and morals in the world. They try to explain that using naturalistic causes, but they come up short. So just, just hold on there for a bit and we'll, kinda, we'll get into that. This will hopefully become clearer and clearer. Another explanation is that naturalism is the philosophy that maintains that, number one, nature is all there is, and whatever exists or happens is natural. Nature, the universe or cosmos, consists only of natural elements, that is of spatio-temporal material elements, matter and energy. And then interestingly, I like this... I, I'm fascinated by where they go with this. So uh, nature, natural elements, spatial material stuff, and non-material elements, mind, ideas, values, values, logical relationships. And then listen to the language that are either associated with the human brain or exist independently of the human brain and therefore show how imminent in the structure of the universe now, uh, and, and therefore somehow imminent in the structure of the universe. So notice the affirmation of the fact that there are things called values, ideas, or logical relationships. Now, those are not really things you can test in a laboratory. But where do they say they come from? Well, they, they come from the organic stuff, the natural stuff in the world, like the structure of the human mind. Okay, but... We know that's where they come from. We agree that that's where they come from in part. But how, how are those scientific in nature? Like, what's the connection between an idea and the scientific method? How do you, how do you explain the, the first idea? Where did the first idea come from? So if you have a sequence of organisms from something very small and minuscule to something complex like a, a human being... When was the first idea? You might be able to tell me when the first Homo sapien existed according to your timeline of history. But when was the first idea? When and, and how did that arise? Um, when was the first feeling? Have you ever thought about that? According to evolutionary theory, you have the, the focus is on structures, things, life forms growing. But within those structures, there are intangible elements like ideas or love what was when did the first feeling of love arise and what was the mechanism that suddenly out of non-love arose love out of no ideas no ability to think or comprehend where did the first idea come from and what was the mechanism that caused it to suddenly erupt and why was it sustained and why were there multiple other ideas or where did desire come from? What, and this uh, billion-year-old grid of, of, of graduated life forms, at what point did one of those life forms suddenly have the ability to have desire, motive, 
Where did that come from? Now, these are difficult philosophical questions, but I can tell you one thing. The scientific method can't answer them. So if they can't answer them, then the scientific method at least needs to say, well, maybe there are some things that while we see the tie-in between them and our method, there's, there's a little ambiguity there. Well, if there's ambiguity, then don't say no. At least say maybe that there's a god or some gods or something out there beyond us. So uh, moving on in this definition, uh, three, nature works by natural processes and follows natural laws and can, in principle, be explained and understood by science and philosophy. Well, I can tell you one thing. Science is not philosophy. <laughs> philosophy is not science. It's a related discipline. Philosophy essentially is the study of words, of wisdom, of concepts. There's philosophy of science, but it's not one and the same. There's a tie-in between the two, but you don't do philosophy, at least not all philosophy according to the scientific method, but notice they're trying to compensate for the fact that there's things that we think about that really have nothing to do with the scientific method, so they've got to throw in words like philosophy and hope that you miss it in the definition. The supernatural does not exist. Only nature is real. Therefore, supernature is non-real. Naturalism is therefore a metaphysical philosophy opposed primarily to supernaturalism. Okay, well, if naturalism is uh, metaphysical philosophy opposed primarily to naturalism, then in a sense, one might say that naturalism is a worldview based on the negative or the reactive or the conflictive. Naturalism is basically that which opposes the supernatural. That's kind of a bad reason to form a worldview, just in opposition to another. Theism, however, is not a worldview that is in opposition to that which is natural. We embrace both. So theism, while Christians can be reactionary, while apologetics by definition is defensive, theism did not arise out of a reaction to some other worldview. It just was. And we're talking even about outside of Christianity, the earliest peoples worshipped gods or a god in some way, shape, or form. Here's a couple of interesting quotes. James Sire, uh, by the way, he, he wrote a great book, I think back in the 90s, called The Universe Next Door. It's kind of a, a primer on worldviews. Anyway, he says, in, in intellectual terms, the root is this. In theism, God is the infinite personal creator and sustainer of the universe. In deism, God is reduced. He begins to lose personality, though he remains creator and by implication sustainer of the universe. So when you think of deism, just think of a God that's absent. In naturalism, God is further reduced in that he loses his very existence. Now, in fact, this is the digression. This is my... my evaluative word, the digression that we have seen within the Western world. So prior to the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment kind of took place the latter part of the 17th century, first part of the 18th century, heavy emphasis on reason, heavy emphasis on rational explanations to origins, meaning, eternal destiny, that kind of stuff. The Enlightenment, prior to the Enlightenment, <clears throat> The vast majority of the Western world believed in some form of theism. 
that there is a God. Now, again, not necessarily biblical Christianity, but some sort of theism. Then we have, through the Enlightenment, a movement more towards deism. And uh, keep in mind that uh, even some of the originators of, or key guys in the Enlightenment, Isaac Newton, they weren't non-theists per se. They still believed that there was that which was supernatural. Nevertheless, we move from theism, a God who sustains and is involved in the world, then the move to, well, there's a God, but he's not involved, then the move to, well, there is no God, and therefore he's not involved. And another explanation, again, given by the same guy at the bottom of the previous page, since everyone agrees that the natural exists, and we do, it is the responsibility of the supernaturalist to demonstrate the existence of the supernatural. This they have not done. Now, here's what I would say to that. That's dishonest. Because by saying... It's the responsibility of the supernaturalist to demonstrate the existence of the supernatural. I know what you're saying. You're saying that you want me to demonstrate the existence of the supernatural using your method, the naturalistic method. And I'm saying back to you, the naturalistic method is not adequate to describe the supernatural. It's just simply not because of its assumptions that there is only that which is tasteable, touchable, smellable, explainable, describable, so forth and so on. So your, your actual method is not usable to describe the supernatural. And that's why you're saying I haven't explained it because I haven't taken a step into your camp, taken your method and tried to apply it to my worldview. There is another method that must be partially adopted to adequately defend theism. And it's not naturalistic scientific thinking. Okay, Joy? Well, yes, there are clues and evidences that point to the direction of the God that we describe. Just like if you walk down the hall and find Josiah Rock somewhere in the building, and you look at the kid, and you talk to the kid long enough, and you hang out with him, you're going to say, you know what, are you Aaron Rock's son? Because there's certain features that you have or certain mannerisms that you have that look a lot like this guy that's teaching a class down the hall. Now, until you do a DNA test, you probably can't prove it conclusively, but you can prove it beyond a shadow of your own personal doubts, right? So, because my imprint is on him. And in the same way, if it is true that there is a God who also is a creative God who created the world, then one can assume that they're going to see certain traits within creation that mimic or in some way reflect that, the glory of that God. Um, what I would say, though, Joy, is this, that's really more of a, a down-here kind of conversation. We're a little more pie-in-the-sky-ish at this point, and that uh, what you're saying I absolutely agree with, but what I want to do first is poke holes in the worldview, right? Because there's, there are other... Um, uh, certainly there are, there are counter-arguments to pretty much every argument that 
we have come up with as Christians to point toward the creative God. What you'll find is most people actually haven't thought about their worldview and whether it's consistent or inconsistent. So that's kind of where we're starting. Any other comments or questions? We'll get into some of those later on in this course, by the way. Okay, where is the origin? This is going to be interesting. Because uh, naturalism didn't actually exist as a philosophy of life or a worldview before the 19th century. But only as an occasionally adopted and non-rigorous method among natural philosophers. It is unique... It is a unique philosophy, that is, as a worldview, naturalism as a worldview, in that it is not ancient or prior to science. So one might say that, in fact, with guys like Darwin, he actually did come up with something quite original. And, and, and that's why a lot of people gravitated to it, because oh, this is finally an explanation that we can use to disprove theism, for instance. Naturalism begins with Galileo. Galileo lived from 1564 to 1642, the year he died. Isaac Newton was born, 1642. He lived to 1727. They began to explain nature by theoretical or ex experimental descriptions of matter and their motions. Their discoveries were all made within a completely naturalistic methodology. The outstanding success of this method led others to emulate them. In other words, in the other sciences... And a comprehensive understanding of the universe was initiated. However, Galileo and Newton did not hesitate to attribute supernatural causes to things that they thought could not be explained by natural causes. But as further scientists did their work, they felt they could continue to explain away pretty much everything. And now there's a great deal of arrogance among some scientists today in that they literally think they can explain everything, which I find to be hilarious because I'm not very old, but I've been around long enough to know for a fact that science has even changed in my lifetime. I, I was watching uh, an episode of TED Talks. Have you ever seen, seen that? And there was a geologist on there, and I'm guessing he's probably, I don't know, in his 60s. And do a doctor, a PhD. And he even said, and what, I can't remember what he was describing, but he even said, now what I'm going to share with you tonight is completely different than what I was taught when I went to school in the 70s. So there you go, geology, or aspects of it, have changed in 30 years, which is a very small amount of time compared to 13.6 billion years, or whatever it might be, according to the Big Bang Theory. So in that little slice of time, there has been a change, at least in some theories and methods. Well, that's fine. Hopefully that's for the good. I don't have a problem with that. I appreciate your honesty. But then don't tell me that science is absolutely static, never changes, and has the bottom line answer to absolutely everything there is to possibly know. It's extremely arrogant, in fact, to say that, because it's just simply not true. Until the late 18th century, most scientists agreed with them, but the influence of the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment, by the way, is often called the Age of Reason. Again, late 17th, 18th century, mostly in Europe, eventually jumped the... Atlantic to the, to the U.S. and Canada, led scientists, and they name a bunch of names, to abandon all supernatural explanations in favor of natural ones. Biology was the last science to be naturalized by John Baptiste Lamarck and Charles Darwin. It is believed that all of these men intentionally tried to emulate Newton to be the Newton of his day, 
and science by finding purely natural laws to explain natural processes and objects in their respective areas of expertise. You know, there was a time when scientists said this, that theology is the queen of the sciences. So biologists, chemists, physicists, doing their work, trying to do it well, pre-enlightenment, still recognized theology as a viable discipline to the point that they considered theology to be the overarching queen of the sciences. The first doctorate ever given in the world was a doctor of divinity, which is the old word for theology. Now, it's interesting, in our world, we have a great deal of respect for MDs, right? Physicians. And so generally, if you call someone a doctor, you assume, well, that means they're a physician. They're a scientist, right? Uh, in actual fact, the early doctors weren't given to physicians. They were called physicians, not doctors. They were called physicians. It was theologians that received the first doctorates. And those were considered the highest levels of education, for instance, for instance, at Oxford University in England. The president of the college was always a theologian, doctor of, doctor of divinity. They didn't take a physician and let him run the school, or a biologist and let him run the school. It was the theologians that ran the school. So the scientists in their respective areas recognize the supremacy of God, the study of God's word in all of the disciplines. And that's just the way it was done. They did good biology for Decades and centuries with that worldview. They did good physics. They did good chemistry. But with the Enlightenment, suddenly theology is like a joke. So take myself. I'm a trained theologian. I've actually had people laugh at me when I tell them I'm a pastor. Like my, my, my neighbor two doors down a number of years ago, we were chatting in the driveway, and he says, um, so what, what, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm the pastor of a church. And without a word of a lie, he went... <laughs> And then he kind of caught himself. Like they think we're a joke. But there was a time when theology was the queen of the sciences. And now it's been relegated to the place of, well, you're, you're basically a, a moron. They don't even respect you. You're not even a peer. You're, you're a moron if you believe in God. So this is just interesting to note the shift in the Western world and in our mindset and how pervasive and influential naturalism has been in relegating God, not to a footnote, but to someone who's non-existent in our lives and in our world. So again, we're not opposed to biology. Christians have done good biology for a long, long time, or physics or chemistry. We're not opposed to that. But it's, we would perhaps suggest that there's something beyond that that needs to be talked about to understand life. So here's just some major perspectives on uh, naturalism in bullet point form regarding matter. Matter is uh, eternal. Matter generates from matter, ad infinitum. Uh, matter is all that matters, one could say. Matter is viewed as a great mechanism working in harmony. So there's matter, and it's divided up into rabbits and people and trees and stars and universes and all that kind of stuff, and it's just kind of working as one giant mechanism in harmony. No one really knows what the mechanism is that keeps it all in harmony. I mean, on a micro level, you could say, well, 
in order for this animal to exist, it needs this animal to eat, or this animal to eat, or this plant to eat, or this seed to eat, and we can kind of create these little ecosystems of how everything kind of keeps moving. But to the best of my knowledge, even naturalists don't know what the mechanism is that allows the entire universe to function with huge amounts of sequence and logic, like how solar systems, planets revolve, uh, how uh, planets revolve around suns and how solar systems all fit together and galaxies in the universe. I mean, there's, there's a lot of information governing all of this. Nobody really knows exactly how it's all governing itself. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they recognize that there's a measure of order and mechanics within the known universe. With regard to the nature, nature and the cosmos, na naturalism implies a unity and lawfulness in nature, a condition in which nature's reality can be objectively understood, without which the pursuit of scientific knowledge would be useless and uncertain. In other words, they recognize systems and structures and sequences, and if you don't have those, it's kind of hard to look at it. It's, it's hard to, to uh, like with language, you can't, if I just start throwing out words, and, but, it, cow, cat, window, dog, you know, he's, I can understand the words, but I, I can't understand him because there's no sequence. Language has to have sequence, subjects, then verbs, objects, and all the other stuff in between, right? If you're a psychologist, you have to look at human behavior, patterns of behavior, in order to make a diagnosis. If you're a medical doctor, you as, let's say you're a cardiologist, you assume certain things about the way heart, the heart works in relationship to the rest of the body. So if I go to a cardiologist, he doesn't, he doesn't have to start from scratch and start his education from scratch. He looks at me and says, this guy's a human. He has a heart. I know a few things about hearts because I've looked at 10 million of them. And so I can make a diagnosis. So he assumes certain systems as to how the human heart works. And the same in the universe. Scientists can explore the universe because there are systems and processes that are observable within it. So science needs systems in order to do science. What they can't do is tell us how those systems got there, at least not on a macro level. So this is just kind of an, an interesting glitch in the, in the scientific method or the absoluteness of the scientific method. As the name implies, this tendency consists essentially in looking upon nature as the one original and fundamental source of all that exists and in attempting to explain everything in terms of nature. Either the limits of nature are also the limits of existing reality or at least the first cause. The universe exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system, not open to miracles or reordering from the outside. Well, what about reordering from the inside? Let's reorder the human body. Let's put the heart up here, the appendix in the neck. Let's take the foot and stick it up here. Are you going to be a functional creature? No. Um, okay, what if just something very microscopic happens? Like what if I just am born with one little strand of DNA missing? Is that going to be a problem? Yeah, it's going to be a big problem. Okay, what if my temperature goes up just two degrees? Is that going to be a problem? Yeah, it's going to be a problem. What if it drops three or four degrees? Is that going to be a problem? Yeah, it's going to be a problem. So the slightest deviation in my systems, and I have a problem, right? So you need order in order to describe me. 
and you're, you're, you tell me if there's a slight deviation in the order of my bodily processes, I'm going to have a problem. So how then did I evolve from a single-celled organism to here without having any problems along the way, when in order to be at any stage in that process, certain things have to be there? Like everything sort of has to line up and be perfect. Why is it that I can go through conceivably billions of microscopic changes to get to the point I'm at now in your theory, but now if the slightest little thing goes wrong, I'm dead or sick or incapacitated. How do you explain that? You can't. Now, the interesting thing is I can then apply that argument to every other living organism on the planet. And then I can apply it to ecosystems. And I can apply it to, uh, well, we can even apply it to uh, sociological studies. As soon as you throw out the ethic of marriage, problems start to happen in society. <laughs> it's, pr it's a proven fact. As soon as you throw out sexual ethics, problems start to happen in society. So how do you explain all of that? If, if we get away from a certain, certain amount of order, problems happen. I mean, was there a point when the earth was just rolling around and there was no sun? How did it sort of get into the right orbit with the sun on the right axes with just the right temperature and all that kind of stuff without getting screwed up in the process? How does that all just kind of happen, right? So there's a great deal of um, need for good science to rely upon observations of order and continuity in creation. And there's a, a great recognition that if that continuity is disturbed, there's problems. But the very basis of evolutionary theory says, no, things have been in flux and changing for billions of years. How does that all happen? Regarding humanity, how does a naturalist view you? How does a naturalist view you? Well, humans are simply machines within a larger machine. What's personality then? You have a personality, right? I have a personality. What is that? Personality is just a mixture of chemicals and physical properties not yet fully analyzed. Yeah, no guff they're not yet fully analyzed because they're not subject to the scientific method. Right? And finally, there is no transcendent meaning to human history. Well, how can we speak of meaning? Or where does, any con where does the concept of meaning even come from? There's no transcendent meaning. Well, is there a little bit of meaning? Well, yeah. Is there a meaning to your existence as a naturalist? Yes. Where does the concept of meaning even come from? I'm not analyzing what you think is your meaning. But where does the concept of meaning even come from? So you can talk pie in the sky and say, well, there's no tran transcendent meaning. Well, is there average everyday meaning? Oh, yeah. Where does that come from? And why is it actually, in fact, quite consistent among all human beings that we sort of all answer the question, this is what we're looking for to get meaning. We want some relationships that are satisfying. We want a sense of self-worth. Uh, we want a sense of respect. Where did that, how come it's very consistent among human beings? We're all, you're not going to go to uh, some tribe in Africa and their sense of meaning is, well, what, what gives me meaning is when I get beat up and sexually abused. I just love it. Or my sense of meaning is to die as young as possible. 
No, their sense of meaning, their basic quest for meaning is the same for mine. Aside from culture, they want respect, healthy relationships, peace, harmony, that kind of stuff. It's very, very consistent around the world, which is interesting. Why is it that we're so much alike? So these are some, these are some generally speaking, some answers that the naturalist gives to some of these fundamental questions. Let's, uh, let's take our break, and um, uh, we'll come back in about 10 minutes, and we'll have a conversation about views of God and death and so forth.